Hey yo, what it is? What's up? What's good everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Cinema Survey Podcast. I'm your humble host, Josh Dickinson. If you're trying to hear some real and some honest reviews on your favorite films, your favorite shows, and everything happening in the world of motion pictures, do me a favor, sit back, relax, shoot, you can even kick your feet up if you feel like it. But whatever you do, make sure that you enjoy this episode of the Cinema Survey Podcast. We are now on episode number two of the Cinema Survey Podcast. We made it episode two, y'all. Two episodes. That's a big deal. That's a big deal for somebody who just started off, man. But no, I'm excited. I'm sorry to get this episode rolling. And um, yo, honestly, shout out to anybody who sat through the first episode. Y'all, each and every last one of you, even though I know none of y'all listen to it, y'all are real one. I mean, that first one was rough. It was raw. It was ruggedy. A lot of bums in the road. You know, a lot of stuff going on in the background with that episode. I mean, I was, I was when I was recording it, like my fan, my laptop, the fan started to, my laptop, I guess, started to overheat. So the fan was going and so I'm, it was going throughout the whole entire episode. So I'm listening to it again. It's like, what's that noise in the background? So now when I listen to the first episode, I'm distracted because I hear the fan of my laptop going and it just, it just ruins the experience for me. But if you sat through all 42, 43 minutes of that podcast, that first episode, I appreciate you. You are a real one, and I will try to do better for this one. I feel like we have learned it. I throw my laptop on my bed, put some covers on it, so if my laptop starts acting up again, um, we should be uh, we should be good to go. So we learned from episode one. Now we're moving on to episode two. We're excited for episode two. Um, this one we were I titled it the uh, the auteur theory. Now this is my conf- I gotta confess. You know I gotta confess like Usher. I don't have the most vast, you know, diverse and wide ranging. Um, vocabulary, you know, that wasn't always my strongest suit back in school. But once I can, I guess I was reading something, uh, reading sort of a movie review or something. This this phrase auteur came up, and I was thinking about what this word auteur means. So I look at the definition because that's just what I do when I don't know um, words. And the definition of auteur is not quite simply this: it's a filmmaker whose personal influence, artistic control over a movie, or is so great that that same filmmaker is regarded as the overall author or the overall auteur of the film. So this is the filmmaker, this is the director who has his or her, his or her hands all over the film from the directing, the, the camera shots, uh, from the music, from the score. When you watch it, you know it's from this sort of director. You know, it's just like you see something and you feel like it just got that vibe. You know, it's just got that look, got that feel. It's got that, you know, it's got that vibe, that vibe, that vibe. It's got that vibe. It's probably not smart to be, you know, singing an R. Kelly song in today's day and age, but you get what I'm trying to say. It just got, it just gives you that feeling that, oh, I saw that. Oh, yeah, I know who directed that. I know who did that work. It's because it's clearly a Phil the Blake type movie. Um, it just has that vibe. You know, when I look at this society now, I think about directors and you know in the industry that has this type of vibe to every single movie or, or a project they put out names like quentin tarantino comes to mind first one kind of comes to mind is tarantino and for me i now i haven't seen every single tarantino film right but when i think of a tarantino film the first thing that stands out is amount of violence and gore in tarantino films like i just it's just over the top is obnoxious almost video game-esque when it comes to tarantino films you know i haven't seen i haven't seen both kill bills i'm pretty sure there's two but only thing i remember about kill bill is uma thurman in tights 
cutting off a woman's head. I mean, she sliced this woman's head off and her, her head slid off her neck like a slice of pizza. It was just over the top um, type of gore. You can even fast forward even later to um, 2012 um, with uh, with Django. I mean, the blood on there, the everything, the amount of violence on there, it did, I didn't know if it was blood or if it was ketchup. I mean, it was just over the top with Tarantino films. But but hey, that's his style. That's what he does. That's what he, that's how he makes his films look and feel. When you when you see that on screen, you're like, oh yeah. That's a Tarantino film. I'm not hating for it. You know, shout out to Tarantino. Um, and also another director that has this type of has this type of vibe as an auteur is uh, is Spike Lee. Spike Lee definitely has has left his imprint and his uh, um, his his impact on his films, especially in the '90s. I mean, you think about "Do the Right Thing" or "She's Got to Have It." You know, our school days. These are films that you know. I look at it. It screams the night. It screams at the type of color scheme, the settings, and the stories that he he tells. That screams, you could tell it's a Spike Lee joint, you know, and especially in the 90s, because I mean, feel like talking specifically about Spike, he's clearly evolved throughout his career. I mean, look at him in the, in the 21st century. You got movies like Inside Man and even Black Klansman. I mean, those films don't feel like it was the same film from uh, from a director who directed like Do the Right Thing. But still, you look at a Spike Lee joint, especially in the 90s, they stand out. And you can see clearly that it's from this one director. It's from this one auteur. But this specific episode, this specific episode, it's not about Quentin Tarantino. It's not about Spike Lee. We can go about talk about a whole bunch of directors we wanted to. We can go down a whole gamut. Um, we want to go talk about Alfred Hitchcock if we want to really get you know sophisticated and film school-y. But this specific episode is going to talk about a director of my personal preference. My favorite directing. Now, I know I hinted, I, t I mentioned him in the last episode, so I'm going to talk about him more. And on this one, it is the one, the only, I call him the Michelangelo of motion pictures, Christopher Nolan. See, to me, in my opinion, if I were to open up a physical, you know, like a physical Webster's Dictionary right now, um, dedicated to film and cinematography, Christopher Nolan's face would be next to the definition of auteur. When I think about auteur, I think Christopher Nolan. I know when I sit down and experience a fantastic blockbuster film, or even an indie film since he started out in the indie realm, I know it's coming from Christopher Nolan. He is that type of director that has a unique style, that has a unique um, tone in all of his projects. You can date back to his first project in 1998 with following all the way this year into 2020 and Tenet. There's still certain styles and techniques that he uses then that he still uses now and I expect him to use in the future. Um, classic, fantastic films I know he's going to create, you know, in the future. So, you know, getting ready for this episode also, looking at more phrases and doing some research on Chris Nolan. There's this other phrase um, in addition to auteur that stood out and it's just basically, um, it's called art house films. So art house films is simply uh, the complete opposite to a blockbuster. You think blockbuster, huge budget, um, super famous actors, a whole bunch of explosive CGI. Art house films is more the indie route, more the smaller, more intimate, focusing on the story, focusing on the impact and, and the overall style that a director is trying to convey um, in his work, his or her works. And Chris, to me, Chris Nolan uh, masters this as well. He is like it's like an oxymoron because Christopher Nolan creates art house blockbusters you know he has the sophistication the, the 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 mindset to create a really intentional powerful movie with an amazing story with the backing and support of a, of a major blockbuster and, and the budgets i mean the budget for 10 or even inception i don't know what it is off the top of my head but it's definitely in the millions of millions and millions of dollars so in my opinion 
Chris Nolan is one of the few directors that have mastered this this gift of uh, this talent, I should say, of making art house blockbuster films. No matter what we have in front here now in 2020, or even back um, when he first started, and I can't wait to see what he continues to do moving forward. And so this episode, we're just going to dive into um, his techniques, what, what he when he talks about his filming techniques, his um, his storytelling, and everything that makes Christopher Nolan, personally, in my opinion, the best director out right now, and the overall Nolan effect that he has in today's society in the film industry starting now listen i don't know maybe it's because you know i went to business school as an as an undergrad run with the undergrad at ucf go nice charge on um then again business school get my mba and my master's program but you know whenever i try to look at like the background or the journey or somebody's you know story on their on their rise to fame or wherever they are you know my my first tool that i go to is um you know, it's still LinkedIn. You know, I'm addicted to LinkedIn, man. So don't ask me why, but you know, getting ready for this uh, this episode, man. I was like, I went on LinkedIn, and you know, I searched up Christopher Nolan. You know, just I just just for the heck of it, hey, let me see if this dude, you know, has has a LinkedIn account and see something I can um, learn from. But uh, you know, when I went on LinkedIn, of course, Christopher being a very popular first name and Nolan being an even more popular last name, hundreds of Christopher Nolans came up, and um, there's uh, there's. Um, to my surprise, there's a, a Christopher Nolan, a Chris Nolan, who works for the New York Jets in scouting. So I'm guessing, you know, after now that tenant's out and done, um, are the Christopher Nolan that we all love and know and love, you know, he's probably looking for the next best um, draft prospect for the New York J-E-T-S Jets, Jets, Jets. Um, there's also a Christopher Nolan who's a manager and director at, over there at J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, so I guess after the Hollywood days are over, he's just going to go into banking. So shout out to Chris for that. And there's even a Chris Nolan who's um, a student at Rutgers or was a student at Rutgers in New Brunswick. I, I wonder if he's studying, actually going to film school there instead of studying English. You know, you never know. And it's never too late to go back to school if you feel like it. Um, no, but all jokes aside, you know, um, looking up um, kind of his, his background, his, his bio, um, you know, I go to IMDb. Shout out to IMDb. I am somebody who will always be IMDb fan. IMDb over Rotten Tomatoes every day. All every day, all day, every day. Um, shoot, maybe one day we get the Cinema Survey podcast popping to a point where IMDb wants me to do some ad breaks, you know, some ad reels in there. IMDb, anybody working for y'all, if you're listening, I will be happy and willing to promote this website. Love IMDb. But anyways, their bio for Christopher Nolan reads thusly. It says he's best known for his cerebral, often non-linear storytelling Acclaimed writer-director Christopher Nolan was born on July 30th. Shout out to all the July babies. It's proof that only the great ones are born in July. July 30th, 1970 in London, England. She's in London, bruv. England, bruv. You would know that if you watched you know, any of his um, interviews. Um, over the course of 15 years of filmmaking, Nolan has gone from low-budget independent films to working on some of the biggest blockbusters ever made. From indie to blockbuster phenom like i was saying art house blockbusters he has mastered art house blockbusters so at seven years old nolan began making short movies with his father's super eight camera while studying english literature at university college london ucl he shot on 16 millimeter films at ucl's film society where he learned the gorilla techniques he would later use to make his first feature-length film following in 1998 on a budget of around six thousand dollars it should be on a budget of only around only six thousand dollars good 
goodness gracious. The noir, the noir thriller was recognized at a number of international film festivals prior to his theatrical release and gained Nolan enough credibility that he was able to gather substantial financing for his next films and the films and that led to uh, Memento and then Memento led to Insomnia and on and on and on. This is actually a very long, thorough biography on IMDb. I mean, I don't know if y'all been on IMDb lately, but it's almost like Wikipedia for for film from film numbers so shout out to imd for that but um no man looking at his background and do some digging into chris Nolan, the man it's just like how do you not go to film school how do you make these incredible works of art and and realize that he just didn't have to go he didn't go to film school i mean you know i guess it really proves that school can only take you so far i mean even if you, if you want to go to like his educational route he did study english and he is a writer um, for the story or, or the screenplay for a lot of these um, popular films like Inception. He wrote Inception as well. Um, so, I mean, I guess he's still using his degree, but it's still kind of like, wow, he didn't even go the um, the film school route that you know, many um, directors and um, artists, you know, do that were, are known to do, um, which is pretty, um, was pretty interesting. But also something that stood out when he was over there at UCL, um, he met um, the love of his life, uh, Miss Emma Thomas. Who, um, who we obviously would end up marrying, and Emma Thomas was uh, has been a producer on many of his uh, of their films. I just say their films together, um, and even his brother John John Nolan. Um, he works with John Nolan a lot, and John writes the screenplays and stories for many of his films also. So I kind of like how Chris has made it like a family affair. When it comes to um, his projects, you know, shoot, I'm sure when his kids become of age, his sons and daughters can probably become the actors and actresses in his future films. You'll never know. Be like a, one big old happy family when it comes to future Chris, Chris Nolan um, films. But looking at his background and seeing where he, what he's doing now, I feel like his projects and and even all 11 of his movies, you know, the whole Sistine Chapel, if we still want to, you know, roll on the, uh, the Michelangelo you know, analogy, has all created this overall Nolan effect, you know, a Nolan effect with a body of work that has been awesome and, and, and growing that you can tell from following in 1998, I mean, up into this year with Tenet in 2020. And something that kind of stands out, um, one of the first things that stands out with this whole Nolan effect, in my opinion, is his cast. Who he chooses to be in his films and his projects says a lot about Christopher Nolan. And it's kind of kind of funny, kind of unique how it's almost like Adam Sandler. You remember Adam Sandler at the beginning, like he had his own clique. He had like the clique where he would always have like Rob Schneider and other actors, actors always in a lot of his films. Like you knew he had his like his posse that was in a lot of the um, Adam Sandler's films. Christopher Nolan has that as well with, with uh, the directors or with, excuse me, with the actors and actresses that he uses. So I went back and just thought of um, some, some um, people that, that I noticed off the top of my head that has been in a, that have been in a lot of his um, his films. So I want to start from from lowest to highest, and one of the one of the actresses that that stand out is um, uh, I'm probably going to butcher her name, uh, Marion Cotillard. Marion. Very French, um, but she's been in two. She's been in two Christopher Nolan films, being The Dark Knight Rises, where she played Talia, Talia, Talia Alagul, coming back for revenge of her father's death from um, uh, Bruce Wayne and Dark Knight Rises, and also um, Maul. She played Maul in Inception, Leonardo Leo's um, Leo's wife, who has a major role in that film. I mean, everything Maul did basically was controlling uh, Leonardo's um, character in the film. 
making Inception as great as it was. And she, her portrayal of, of Maul in Inception was absolutely fantastic. But she's only been in two. I would love to see her more because she's an awesome, awesome actress. And then you have Jordan Gordon, Jordan, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's also been in two. Man, I really feel like there was a time, once upon a time, it felt like Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in so many movies like all the time um in hollywood um i would expect them to think he was in more than just two i mean i had to do some research again but obviously he was in the dark knight rises as well and it, just like marion he was in inception he was the good old cop that we loved from gotham good old buddy old friendly neighborhood cop in gotham who turns out to be robin at the very end and he was also part of leo's clique um or I should say cop the character cops click in um, inception where we're trying to steal or in inception plant ideas inside people's dreams to do in reality so shout out to joseph gordon levin for that um now we'll move it up a little bit tom hardy everybody's favorite tom hardy british ju um, juggernaut tom hardy has been in three christopher nolan films three so again just like the prior two he's been in dark knight rivals as the famous bane you dearly adopted the darkness i was born in it molded by it i didn't see the light until i became a man now, listen everybody makes fun of that little little voice of that <laughs> whatever was going on with Bane. i really thought tom hardy did a great job as bane really great way to reimagine the character i thought he was awesome um tom so dark knight rises one um inception again two uh, again um part of cops click um in inception and then three he was in dunkirk he was one of the fighter pilots um in dunkirk going in to saving the day um there at the end of the film so shout out to tom hardy with his three and then you have the man himself christian bell mr dare to me christian where is she christian i'm not wearing hockey pads let me stop but i i can't everybody's entitled to their opinions personally i think christian Bale was a fantastic batman michael keaton is the best because he's the og he set the tone for everybody but christian bell's batman i really liked it. i really enjoyed it. i thought he did a fantastic job but that's it's just my opinion. Whether you know there, I'm not trying to sway anybody, uh, but just put some respect on my man's name. That's all I gotta say. Uh, so he's been in four. He's been in four Christopher Nolan films. Obviously, the Dark Knight trilogy, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. And also, he was in The Prestige. Yes, The Prestige, alongside the great Hugh Jackman. Now, listen, I was really late. Yeah, I was really late to Prestige. I'm gonna say I'm pretty sure I've been late to a lot of Christopher Nolan films, but Prestige was when I was drastically late too. It came out in 06. I didn't see it until freaking last year in 2019. I didn't even heard of it until last year in 2019. I feel embarrassed that that was the case. Um, it was a fantastic film. Awesome cast. Um, and Christian Bill, like always, killed that role too. So he's been in four Christopher Nolan films. And one that was a shock, this next um, actor was kind of a shocker to me. Um, for me, I should say. And now it's Cillian Murphy. Cillian Murphy has been in five Christopher Nolan films. He has been in each through all three of the Dark Knight trilogy. He was in Batman Begins, obviously a Scarecrow. Um, oh, he was Scarecrow in all three of them. Um, but I was like, dang, was he in Was he in the Dark Knight? He was in the very beginning of the Dark Knight because he got captured in that, um, that parking lot, if you remember. And then I guess he was in the very end of the Dark Knight Rises when Gotham was getting turned upside down and he was like a judge or something. I mean, like the man really did show up in all three of the Dark Knight trilogies. I totally forgot about that. And something that was really cool about uh, Cillian is that he actually 
actually auditioned to be Bruce Wayne Batman for 2005. Obviously, he got beat out by Christopher, Christian Bale, but his audition was impressed Christopher Nolan and the rest of the casting crew um, so much that I say, hey, let's bring him back. Let's give him a role as Scarecrow and shoot. Listen, he turned up to, he ended up um, appearing in all three films. So I guess it was a, a win-win um, for both um, for both sides. Um, again, he was also in another film. He was also the fourth one. He was in um, Inception. Um, he was the the, the main um, individual they were trying to plant, plant the idea um, inside their dreams um, throughout the film. So shout out to him. Great performance in Inception. And also he was in Dunkirk. He was like that mentally broken soldier who was trying to get back home but then he got you know ambushed and then found his way on a civilian boat ship going back to the war um so yeah he was also getting dunkirk and did a good job there so he's been in five asia dark knight trilogy and also in um dunkirk and inception and then at the top at the top of the top of the top an actor that christopher nolan just absolutely adores putting in all his dang near all of his films sir michael kane and now i don't know if michael kane is a sir if he's been knighted if the queen of england has you know tapped his shoulder with two shoulders with, with a sword or whatever but listen sir michael kane sounds better than just mike kane to me so michael kane has been in seven of eleven Christopher Nolan films. He's in 7-Eleven. That means that man is always open and ready to be in the next uh, Christopher Nolan film. You know, he's been in all three Batman films, playing the uh, the one everyone loves, Alfred Pettyworth. He's been in The Prestige. He's been in Inception. He's been in Interstellar. And yes, he is in this year's 2020 um, Tenant. He is in 7-Eleven um, Christopher Nolan films where he has an established role. Now, I say an established role because he is actually um, credited for being in eight films. So he had like an uncredited voice role part that, you know, I got to watch this again. But he was in Dunkirk. Somewhere in Dunkirk, he had an uncredited voice role. I don't know where. I only saw Team Dunkirk like, like once. Um, but he's in there as well. I mean, I, it wouldn't shock me if Chris, it's Christopher Nolan and Michael Caine, like, you know, got, were on set one day and like made an agreement whatever film you know he does in the future he's going to find it he's going to find some role for for michael kane no matter how big no matter how small he's going to squeeze michael kane in there somehow some way um that's a fantastic that's a fantastic relationship michael kane is an awesome actor and um, that's just the type of relationship you know i feel like actors directors can only dream of so um nolan loves michael kane michael kane loves Chris and nolan so i love it i love it too because they make they make great films together um so chris so michael kane eight seven slash eight of the eleven um christopher nolan films incredible incredible awesome also one little um easter egg for this for y'all jeremy theobald the name jeremy theobald now jeremy theobald starred in christopher nolan's very first feature-length film in following in 1998 he was the main protagonist where he was going around following people ends up following this one dude that leads him into a life of theft and burglary and all this and that and then the story flips on top of itself right jeremy theobald has been in three three um um Christopher Nolan films that he's been in following. He had a really small role in, in Batman Begins. I didn't even know this until I was, just going, you know, of course, recently just going back and looking it up. In a small role in Batman Begins, I think he was like a Gotham thug or something, you know, happening in the background. And he was also in Tenet, where he was had a really small role in one one quick scene in Tenet as well, which is just it's it's cool how it's kind of like full circle, you know, how how Chris Nolan started with Jeremy, and now I'm not saying he's ended with having Jeremy in the film, but he's still using 
seen this actor that was in his very first film and his most recent film today with with Tenet in 2020. And you can even go beyond um, his first feature-length film in 98 with them following. He was also in a small indie um, like student project, I guess he was doing at UCL, um, called Doodlebug. Now, Doodlebug is a really short film. I think it's like eight, 12 minutes. I think it's like eight minutes long about a man trapped in his apartment going crazy. Sort of like what, we, what we're experiencing here in quarantine. Sort of like what I'm experiencing here in quarantine. I'm stuck in my apartment going crazy, which, hello, led me to create the Cinema Survey podcast. So I guess, you know, some good things can come out of it. But still, it's a great little short film. And um, he used Jeremy in that small little eight-minute film. Used him again for his feature-length film um, and following and, and still has continued throughout his career as, as Christopher Nolan has gotten more popular and bigger budgets, whatever. He hasn't forgotten where he started from so shout out to christopher nolan for that and shout out to him for having this iconic type of cast or i call it the the, the nolan click um that that he uses and the actors and actresses that he rotates with you know i feel like it just adds to that overall nolan effect that oh they're in this film oh oh, michael kane's in this film it just might be a christopher nolan film you know or cillian murphy's in it it could be a christopher nolan film so adds to that more altruistic um um effect that we're talking about before so another uh, aspect of the of the whole nolan effect with him throughout his films is simply like the score and the music that is used in his films now me i'm not going to stand here and sit here and act like i am a music connoisseur i know everything that is you know about composers and the score and the tone and everything i don't i know what i know i like what i like I know what I know, I hear what I hear, I like what I like what I hear. And I like what I hear from Hans Zimmer. Listen, I'm not a classic connoisseur, music connoisseur. I really don't dive deep into the, the genre, but Hans Zimmer is the greatest composer of films ever. I don't you know, I don't care. I, I'm just dropping hot takes. I do this for a living, okay? There's no one better than Hans Zimmer when it comes to films and it comes to composers for films. Hans Zimmer is that dude. And Hans Zimmer has been in six, at least, I believe it's been six films of Christopher Nolan's. He has all three Dark Knight trilogies. He has Inception. He has Dunkirk. And he also has Interstellar. And, uh, and honestly, as great as he, Hans Zimmer is, was, has been, was in those three films, man, when I think Hans Zimmer, I think Pirates of Caribbean. I'm pretty sure he did Pirates of Caribbean. You know, the tune. That just gets me. I don't know, y'all. That just gets me excited. I really love that song. I think that was his best work. But even with, even in these these Christopher Nolan films, like he still did his thing. I mean, listen, that Inception joint, Time and Inception, that song. At the very end, when it's played, when Cobb wakes up, when Leonardo DiCaprio's character wakes up from his dream, like yo, like it just, it just hits the heart straight. Oh, like I just feel it. Um, listen, he knows what he's doing with Hans Zimmer. So shout out to the fact that um, Chris Nolan is able to get somebody like Hans Zimmer to multiple, multiple of his, of his films. Um, just shows you the, the type of respect that they both have for each other. Because you know what they say: <laughs> real recognize real. Chris Nolan wants Hans Zimmer in his films. Hans Zimmer wants to be in Chris Nolan films. 
That's how you know they're going to be great. Um, even even the films that where um, Hans Zimmer isn't in, because, he, again, he's only been in six. There's 11 other ones. There's five other films that he hasn't been in. You can even go back, in my opinion, to to earlier films. Um, I keep talking about it, but Following, I, Following was a great film. It was his first one and really good. Um, preface of one of the main things of the films that they go around and, and start, and, uh, and they're thieves. They're burglars. They go around and start um, breaking into people's apartments and stealing things. And there's a scene where they're breaking into somebody's apartment and, uh-oh, the boyfriend and girlfriend actually live at this apartment, come back while they're in the apartment breaking into. And in the background, they have the music that's going. It builds intensity. It builds the suspense. It just matches it. You know, even in this earliest, even his very first feature-length film, he, he being Christopher Nolan, had, knew how to use um, music and the score to complement what's happening in the scene to add more emotion and attachment with the audience to, to the characters happening on screen. And it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you see it from very first film and following all the way up to um, 2020 and Tenet. I mean, that opening scene in Tenet was awesome. Um, with, in the auditorium, with the, with the bomb in the auditorium, it was absolutely awesome. The song that was going on there, I don't know what, what specific song it was, but the rhythm was fast, the pace was booming, my heart was racing. I'm like, dang, this movie just started, and I feel like my heart is about to jump out of my chest because the song that was playing complimented the scene so, so well. But when I really stop, pause to think about, like, the top scene moment in any Christopher Nolan films, I feel like that song, like the song where the score was really just, just at, at the peak. It was Dark Knight, 08, and it was the scene at the very end where um, it's the fairies. So the fairies are out on the, the, the two fairy ships are out on, on the on the on the water. So Joker gives a bomb to both boats because he he expects if by nine o'clock you had to blow up everybody in the other ship and you had to blow everybody up in the other ship all i remember is this loud intense building ringing sound that was just building more and more and more and more and more and as the um as the clock got closer to that time and they're deciding should we blow everybody else up should we blow that boat up should we blow that up we should save ourselves should we save them should we do the right thing like they were going great i know i'm just sitting in my in my seat in the theater like oh do something because i know i would have clicked the button I would have blew them up and asked for forgiveness of Jesus later. Like, listen, I was just, I don't know, man. I was going crazy in the theater watching that. This, the music was so intense. And then, of course, if you remember, our good friend, pal Debo for Friday, took that remote and threw it out the window because he did what the passengers and the people on the boat should have did five minutes ago. So shout out to Debo for saving the day in the dark night. The true hero of the dark night was Debo. And he didn't even yank your chain. But anyways... The music that was going down um, during that scene was so intense. I still remember that, like sweating in the theater to this day because that 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 moment that that score that was going on in the background was that intense. Was that option awesome? And yo, Chris Nolan does this throughout his films. You know, these are just things that are just come out the top of my mind, man. He knows how to manipulate, to use the, the music to manipulate the audience to get us invested and get us more focused and drawn into everything that's happening. Um, with the characters on the screen and that's what music is for that's what a score is for that's what a playlist is for it's trying to make you more immersive into the story and Christopher Nolan he does that so well so so well I mean to the point that I've created my own Spotify playlist called um, film scores and where I just just run I just have a whole bunch of um, songs from from films and of course I got Inception in there I got Interstellar in there I got the Hans Zimmer from the Batman trilogy in there it just just brings back good memories watching these films um, in the theater, so 
awesome scores when it comes to um, the Nolan's and Nolan's films. And so another an additional, or I should say the next um, aspect of the Nolan effect that stands kind of kind of stands out to me is his techniques. When, he, when we talk about filming and the way he films and shoots um, his shots and his scenes on his projects. Now, listen, I'm a novice. I don't know nothing. All right? I ain't go to film school like Chris. You know, I, you know, I, I don't know the, the intricacies, the ins and outs of everything when it comes to filmmaking, the techniques to do it. But when, the, when it, some things that stand out when I when I watch his films or, you know, watch um, read things about how Chris goes out about uh, directing is the fact that he likes to use natural lighting um, when he can with um with when he, when he films and directs in certain shots and, and it starts um, started again at the beginning with following him like we mentioned before his budget with following was little to nothing only six thousand dollars to create a feature-length film um, with following so he's going to so he doesn't have all the money to use all the equipment um, that a lot of people have to use now especially equipment that he has, he has to use now that he has millions of dollars in budgets when he makes these films but back then when he had six thousand dollars he had to get creative you know he had to get creative and he used a lot of natural lighting and you can see it in following and you can definitely see it in batman in the batman films where he uses natural lighting through windows like so and following one of the um most the, the biggest scenes is when uh, the protagonist is meeting um the other character whose also name is Cobb interesting Cobb and they have the like, dialogue why are you following me who are you they, they meet each other for the first time they have a really intense conversation they're right next to a window at a coffee shop and the lighting is hitting you know either um, both their faces like don't need extra 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 um lighting and equipment um christopher nolan filmed following with just a handheld um camera so he just had different angles and had a simple camera to do it because he already had that he already had all the lighting that he needed and that was in his very first film indie film um back in 98 and then you had this major blockbuster film being um the Batman trilogy. I'm starting off with Batman Begins. Um, if you've seen Batman Begins recently, there's a scene um, where Alfred catches Bruce um, oversleeping and he opens the blinds, um, shines all the light that comes into the room, and Bruce is like, Oh, don't you know bats are nocturnal? Blah, blah, blah. Start doing push ups because I'm Bruce Wayne, I'm rich and I'm buff. Anyways, the point is, like, whenever Bruce or Batman is in, in Wayne Manor, he's usually. I should say usually he's often time um, next to a window having natural lighting, you know, so it is, so you can kind of see odes and have this technique how Christopher Nolan uses this technique back and following and uses it again um, throughout um, Batman from a small indie film to a major blockbuster film. Another even going back to Batman um, the Dark Knight Rises, you know, one of the biggest um, scenes in that film is that debate or that um, kind of heated exchange. Bruce has with with Alfred and he's basically at, on the on the staircase and he's saying like yo Alfred I'm done with you because you don't want to support me to go back out there and save Gotham he's like I can't stand next to you and um, watch you kill yourself blah 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 there again Wayne Manor lighting coming from the outside um just natural lighting and it just looks fantastic and it's so I think as a you know I wouldn't say myself a film geek, but as somebody who appreciates film techniques and, and directors, it's cool to see him using the same technique that he was using on these small miniature punitive budgets like on following. He's using it now on these multi-million dollar budget films like the Dark Knight trilogy. Really cool, really interesting, and shout out to um, Chris and the team for doing so. 
Another technique that um, he uses, what is very uh, unique, very interesting, is the fact that he uses non-linear storytelling. And, you know, I really kind of uh, want to think about his non-linear storytelling. Uh, it's really highlighted with um, following and, and, and Memento, his first two films. So following came out in 1998, Memento came out in 2000. Memento is really dope um, because it has a film about, you know, protagonist has, you know, this kind of short term memory loss. He can only remember, he can only remember things up until a certain point when his wife died and trying to figure out who killed her, blah, blah, blah. But the thing that's cool about Memento is the fact that Chris films it, or the storytelling of the non-linear storytelling, I should say, is in a way where the audience is in the viewpoint of, of the protagonist. Because the protagonist doesn't know everything. The protagonist doesn't remember um, everything. He's always trying to piece um, the things together. And every time he goes to sleep, he has to remember all over again. So that's why he writes things on his body. He tattoos things on his body. He writes notes on, on top of the you know, window or in the mirror and behind photos to help him remind us. So when he figures something out, the audience figures it out itself. And it's really told backwards. It's almost like reading a sentence right to left instead of right instead of left to right you know extremely extremely um unique way of storytelling that, that's really really dope and i first i need to go sit down and watch memento again because that that's another one like most Christopher films that's one that i cannot just sit down and watch once and um and understand everything um, but also even with with following that was kind of out of out of order as well to, to build anticipation to see like who the other the side characters are in, in the film um, in the pacing and storytelling is very very unique um, sort of like a pulp fiction in a way and with a non-linear story though not 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 the exact same way but still very similar when it comes to like pulp fiction and everybody loves you know most people love very um pulp fiction but um but Christopher Nolan did not direct Pulp Fiction. He directed um, following Memento and, and others. And something that's cool about Memento and following as well is this use of black and white. Now, I'm somebody who really likes, but I love black and white. I just, I don't know, that's just old school. But I just really like that look. I wish more films like, you know, The Lighthouse came out a couple years ago with Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. And that was shot in black and white. And I really, really like that. But uh, following was all was completely shot in black and white because... Like I said, time and time again, that man had no budget. And Memento was shot in black and white with um, some of the, the flashbacks or some of the exposition pieces um, um, that happened in the in the film. So to add to the, to the tone and, and, the, and the storytelling, which was um, really cool. So hopefully, fingers crossed here that Chris Nolan making more, um, at least more scenes with black and white, not the whole entire movie. But um, when it something that the most... Um, the aspect of when it comes to his film techniques that I appreciate the, the Paramount, just Paramount, is the way Christopher Nolan shoots action shots in his films. I absolutely adore the fact that he adds absolute realism in his action shots. He's someone that uses CGI to enhance the, the 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 scenes the cgi is not the main primary focus it's only used to complement what's going on and personally my favorite genre is action and adventure i love it i love action and adventure i feel like that kind of action and adventure goes hand in hand with drama but um I absolutely love that genre, and that's a genre that Christopher Nolan has made his name in, especially with the Batman. I mean, or let's go even deeper. Let's talk about superhero genre films. Superhero genre films are dominated by CGI. Listen to me, the top three superhero films of all time, Spider-Man 2 in 2004, um, Avengers Infinity War in 2018, 
and Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight in 2008. Now, Spider-Man 2 and Avengers Infinity War had tons, tons of CGI, where the CGI was indeed the focus. Like, you couldn't get around it. It was the focus, but it wasn't bad. Like, I enjoyed it. I liked it. I loved it. And it made, they both were great films. And Dark Knight, on the other hand, probably had little to no CGI at all because he, Christopher Nolan knows how to shoot um, these, 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 these scenes and these films in a way that adds a, an intense amount of realism that draws the audience in and just makes it more believable. That's it. That's the word I'm looking for. Christopher Nolan's action shots and his action films are believable. You know, there's times even my I love Spider-Man, but there's like, okay, obviously this is fantasy. This isn't real. It, it's not real because it, there's CGI there. Or or Infinity or obviously Josh Brolin being Thanos, clearly CGI. But Christian Bale in that suit, that's Christian Bale. Heath Ledger with that makeup, that's that's Heath Ledger. Everything happening in the Dark Knight and and um in all three Dark um Batman films, it looks real. He makes these action shots, and if he has to use CGI, um, it's only to enhance um enhance the overall scene of what's happening in the story. And we can even look just beyond the superhero genre. Um, you can look at um the scenes such as like Interstellar. Interstellar, and that's that's a movie that had some CGI, but it was used to enhance the, the overall scene because they would use props, little little plastic or small props, uh, for, to to make the spaceship. Because of course you can't send Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all right, and Anne Hathaway into space and send them to Mars, really. So you have to make these small little props, where then the camera comes in and zooms zooms in or zooms out to make it appear that obviously they're floating around in space, and then in the background at the post production when they're editing. Then you add the CGI, so it make look so it looks like they're traveling um, throughout space in the different galaxies and whatnot. So, but I will say I will say this: Inception had some CGI. All right, listen, when you're trying to make a dream world, you're going to add that, that CGI. Obviously, that scene when um when when everything was like getting bent up, getting bent backwards, clearly CGI. We get it, but that Inception is the exception because the whole film is basically. Um, not the whole film, but part that one scene of that dream is um, CGI. But even you go in Inception, even some of those action shots about with the um, with the what was it the, the the van that was falling off of the bridge when they were going in slow motion. These are all things that happen that are real action shots and it added a sense of realism that made it believable um, for the audience. Um, it was awesome. And even pivoting back to the Dark Knight, you know, looking at that. Um, what was it? It was like that tractor trailer, that that, that, that long truck, 16, 16 wheeler truck that flipped on top of itself when the Joker was standing in the middle of the road, you know, whatever, um, actually flipped the truck that actually happened um, when the Joker blew up the hospital. Hello, this man is walking away from from a hospital. And he's like, you know, what's wrong with this thing? Boom. Like that was a real reaction from Heath Ledger. He really like freaked out and jumped in the school bus afterwards because a building just blew up behind you and it's crumbling down. I would get out of the way as well. I mean, I gotta imagine that has to be thrilling for not only the director and an audience for, for like myself, it has to be kind of thrilling for um, the actors as well. Cause like, oh shoot, this is real. So you like get a real honest reaction. You're not trying to like imagine um, something happening in front of a green screen, screen screen. You know, you look at the behind the scenes of Avengers films, you know, they're really just in front of a green screen, punching and fighting and all this and that, which again, I'm not hating on it. I love the Avengers films. Keep doing what you're doing, Marvel. But it has to be some type, some type of aspect of doing, of making real um, action, action shots, action sets with 
um, real things happening that just gets a just gets a more authentic. That's another good word. Authentic reaction from the from the from the actors. So I feel like that that's key. And then even shoot even this year with, with Tenet in twenty twenty, there was a scene there. Um, they, they he ran a, a real um, like Boeing seven forty seven busted into uh, a, a building for one of the um, action shots there. So Chris Nolan, I'm saying all this to say Chris Nolan adds a sense of realism with his action shots in a genre of film of Hollywood that is dominated, dominated by CGI and, and where CGI is the focus. He only dabbles in CGI when he has to, when he needs to, when he wants to en enhance the overall scene or enhance the overall story, i.e. Interstellar, i.e. Um, Inception. That's when he'll use the CGI. But overall, even with um, like the superhero genre with Batman, he doesn't use it at as little to, to at all. He doesn't use it at all. He makes it realism. Last point on Batman. The fact that the whole Dark Knight trilogy, that was the first time I watched a superhero film when I was like, yo, this could actually happen. That could actually happen. Some rich mother lover could actually do the things like, who's, who's the richest dude? Uh, Jeff Bezos, right? Jeff Bezos, you know, God forbid his parents died and, and got shot and killed in front of him, and he goes out to the Himalayan mountains and learns from a monk, uh, from a from a you know community of trained ninjas how to become a, a killing machine and lethal. His two hands be lethal weapons. God forbid he does all that. He if that happens, and he comes back, you know, to America and seeks justice and and vengeance for for everyone. Like the the Christopher Nolan's world that he set up with Gotham. In, in the Dark Knight trilogy, made it believable that that could happen. Cause it's all real. It just felt. It, I was. I bought into the realism of the world that he created. Even out to the characters. Look at Bane. Like I said before, I thought Tom Hardy did a great job at Bane. Cause that felt real. Like Bane. Like we saw Bane in the George Clooney Batman. One of the one of the nineties or earlier Batmans. We saw Bane already. You know, messing around with Uma Thurman. He was very comic booky. Had the had the green venom going all of his back, looking like you know oversized juiced out steroid. You know incredible hulk but then here uh, fast forward christopher nolan you get this um, incredibly you know great physique with tom hardy and just added um a sense of realism that um that that fit and matched the um the the, the story and the mm, the atmosphere that that christopher nolan makes in the batman universe it just felt extremely real it was the first time i watched a superhero film i was like dang this could actually happen. You can't watch a Spider-Man film and think like, yo, this could actually happen. You can't necessarily, I guess maybe a couple Iron Man films and think, oh yeah, this can be exactly, I guess Jeff Bezos can make a suit and then start flying around and saying I am Iron Man and whatnot um, and then leading the Avengers. But the Dark Knight trilogy was the first one. I was like, dang, this doesn't feel like a fantasy film. It felt like a, it didn't feel like a fantasy film. The Avengers feels like a fantasy film. Dark Knight Trilogy does not feel like a fantasy film. It does not feel like a fantasy film. And that's the person I feel like that's because of the lack of CGI. I mean, like when I think of fantasy films, like the the, the best, greatest, not greatest, one of the best fantasy franchises ever, um, Lord of the Rings. Look at the OG Lord of the Rings films. Look at how they had amazing, now granted, there was a ton of CGI in Lord of the Rings. Don't let that be clear. But the makeup that was on those orcs and those, you know, those man beast looking guys, that was awesome makeup on the first three lord of the rings and then you look at the hobbit films that came out like a 2011 2012 yada 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 
like they went completely cgi they said forget the makeup forget the realism we're just going to throw computer generated um bad guys in here i was like it was it just felt like it just felt lazy and it just didn't did not add to the story at all in my opinion i definitely preferred that great um makeup that they had in the earlier lord of the rings film that they did in the hobbit films and what have you but Related back to Christopher Nolan, just the intentionality to make it look real. It just brings the audience in, uh, kind of plays tricks on our minds and makes us more invested in it when it's something that we can kind of relate to. Not really relate to, but something that we can believe. It was actually believable. And I feel like his the, the techniques that he uses throughout his films um, are, are awesome and actually believable, especially when it comes to his action shots. But switching gears from the film techniques that he uses throughout all of his um, 11 projects and focusing more on kind of the techniques and, and strategies that he uses in his overall storytelling across his um, 11 films, uh, Chris Nolan, something that kind of stands out in a lot of them are is the use of exposition, you know, in, um, in his projects. And, you know, exposition is being simply, you know, the part of the film in which you know the background of the main conflict is introduced to the to the audience or the viewers you know in this case you know that really stands out and comes to mind as films you know such as insomnia or excuse me not insomnia but inception like right at the very beginning of inception we see Cobb washed up on the island um or, or whatever on the beach and then he's talking to old uh, sato i believe he's talking to old sato and they're having that first initial conversation and sato asks him are you here to kill me? You know, he, he remembers back to a time when he met some older man, or old, a younger man, um, referencing Leonardo DiCaprio's character and cop when they were, you know, going through the whole heist with the Inceptions and playing the idea inside the dreams. He's setting up the stage of what the film is going to be, you know, setting up that, that background um, of the, the main um, primary conflict or, or, or plot in the whole story. So I think, you know, setting that up at the beginning and then we as the viewers and audience can experience it throughout um, the, the film is pretty, um, it's pretty entertaining, especially when it comes to Inception. And Chris Nolan, he uses expositions, you know, in a lot of his films, you know, I want to say, I want to say every single, all 11 films, he uses the exposition um, at the beginning of the film to introduce the audience and the viewers um, to the overall story. But to me, the best exposition that he had um, in his film is The Prestige. So The Prestige, obviously, the big overarching story is about two rival magician, um, magic, magicians um, and their rivalry and their relationship between each other, or their friends and their family, um, significant others, all the above, and how that kind of drives them both insane. However, Michael Caine probably has the most iconic um, kind of quote in the whole film where he's breaking down the three acts of a magic trick being the pledge where you introduce the audience to everything that's going on you set in the scene you're setting the tone for the audience to be wild and then you have the turn and that's when you make something disappear that's when you catch the audience on uh, their attention you catch their breath and catch them in, the, in a gasp and then of course the overall the last and the third act is the prestige where you bring back that object that you made disappear you bring at back that um Fantastic! It's the it's the it's the the punchline for, for for lack of a better terms and a magic trick. And this is just the setting up the whole tone of the entire film because these three acts or these three parts of a magic trick really explains the dynamic, the the, the life and and um the flow of the entire film when it's focusing on these two um these two characters throughout this film of the Prestige. So I mean, expositions expressed in all in all Christopher Nolan films are are great, but the Prestige I think had the best exposition. You know, um, introducing the audience to what the film really is about and hey i had no better better person to, to deliver it than michael kane you can't you can't um, do anything better than that with michael kane but you know in addition to you know the, the exposition 
uh, type techniques he does he uses it in storytelling also like chris don't i feel like rotates on themes you know he kind of uses the same not the same themes every single time but um he touches on on kind of the same um overall arching themes in a lot of his films which i, which I think are really interesting he, he touches on them just in a different way and the first one that comes to mind probably because it's you know the most recent one his most recent film uh, tenant being time travel but time 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 is such a major major theme i think uh chris nolan uh, really dives into in his in his films i mean and i'm not, not just talking about tenor tenant you can see time being displayed in interstellar you can see time being um, talked about in inception and in countless other films but let's just start with tenant simple time travel and going backwards in time i mean we've seen this we've seen time travel back to the future going back in time we've seen it with infinity war and the avengers we've seen it um in many aspects in many different ways but I will give Nolan the credit that, it, that he took a, like a, a common, a common thing, right, with time, and, and kind of twisted it on his head, and 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 showed it in a in a more unique, interesting way. I would say with with Tenet this this year, especially with the fact that everybody was moving backwards. I personally, and that was kind of one of my pet peeves of Tenet. I wish there was more scenes um, when they were inverted. Um, intended that people were people and objects were moving backwards just more and more often i feel like there was only i don't know maybe a quarter of the film it was like that now granted it has to be very difficult and probably extremely expensive to shoot a film with people and objects and everything moving backwards and the scenes that they that they got were fantastic but still that that aspect of moving backwards and seeing time um being dealt and, and moved, maneuvered and manipulated in that way um it was really interesting and very entertaining, especially in that those fight scenes, those fight scenes, those action sequences. You know, with John David, you know, doing a backwards punch or backwards uppercut was uh was pretty was pretty dope. It was pretty dope indeed. Um, but then uh, something like with Interstellar and Inception that are kind of very very similar. You know, I peeped when I was um rewatching those films. Like so, you look at Interstellar, right? You know, when Matthew McConaughey and Hathaway and, and all of them they go out to space and they're going to these far distant planets the closer they got to um they got a gargantua or, or the or the black hole the more time that they lost right so i think it was miller's planet that was it was just like a planet filled with water or whatever like 10 minutes on miller's planet was like 10 years back on earth so they were just trying to get in get out get their data get the information that they need to see if this was a, a habitable planet habitable planet um, for for Earth to come to for the citizens of Earth to come to, um, but obviously the stuff went the stuff hit the fan and they stayed there longer. So ten minutes felt like ten hours, and they lost so much time. So by the time they went back to the, the main ship, you know it, it was like twenty years, twenty three years that passed by. It was just it was insane. So basically, that that concept that the closer you get to the black hole and stuff is like the longest one take on earth and then of course if you've been go through interstellar you know matthew McConaughey actually goes into the black hole and when he comes out he's still the same age but his daughter that he left on earth was like what pff, 10 13 years old now she's like 86 years old but he's still the same looking dude looking like looking man like he's straight straight off the straight straight from texas so that manipulation of time was um was pretty cool obviously in interstellar but also um similar but not exactly the same thing with in inception because obviously what's the big thing about inception it's a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream so like the deeper you go into the dream um it feels like five minutes in a dream 
will be like an hour in reality because you feel like oh man that dream was you're in that dream didn't last very long but it was actually like you it was actually like an hour because how many of us took a nap it felt like a like a like a, i was asleep for five minutes but it was actually oh you overslept it was like an hour and a half so i feel like that was pretty cool how they did that so at the end of inception as, as you know it was like three levels of a dream the farther deeper you were into the dream the more time you had in reality to make it um to, for it to match so that's why the whole sequence about them falling um off the off the bridge from the van and then jordan jordan levitt's um role going through the through the hotel room flipping upside down every all those levels was just a fantastic scene and just an awesome way to how he manipulated time um in in his stories especially they're always trying to beat the clock always in that christopher there's always something trying to beat the clock beat time because time is always against um his protagonist's favor you know look at batman uh, at the end of the dark knight rises you know he's trying to beat the clock before the bomb ticks off and blows gotham into smithereens you know so that's one overall and the main overall not the main but one of the big themes that nolan loves to use is the manipulation of time and then there's this thing i like to call the battle of reality how christopher nolan warps changes and and shows this battle that we or, or his characters in his films i should say um battle with reality and you can even take this back all the way to his um his in his really small um independent film like i mentioned before i mean doodlebug really short um short film that he did um with jeremy theobald like i mentioned um this guy locked in his apartment you know and he kind of goes crazy in his apartment but it's a battle with reality because as you can see if you watch it go on youtube and watch it, it it's like a, a bigger version of himself killing a smaller version of himself very weird kind of hard to explain you know over audio over a podcast but um still it's kind of an interesting look at the battle of reality and then you have fantastic amount of this world you know films and stories like i mentioned with interstellar um inception going to the dream world you know is taking us inside another scope inside of another realm of fantasy or science fiction um that we, we haven't seen before you know i i know i like earlier i went on and on and on about how i love the realism um that nolan brought with the batman um universe and how much it made it believe how much it was like believable but he does a very good job with his um with his fantasy and his sci-fi as well i mean interstellar i Although it doesn't seem believable, it's still a, a, a really good um, and entertaining look on that fantasy aspect that um, that he has skilled in. So with that battle of reality, and then there's also like the battle uh, with self that you see in some of his characters um, in the Nolan classics. And for this, I want to talk about insomnia. Now I haven't mentioned insomnia. I don't think I've mentioned it. this is the first time I mentioned it here on this, on this podcast. But Insomnia was a really great film, obviously um, with with Robin Williams, and Robert De Niro. Um, really fantastic one, but um, the, oh, I can go on it and spoil it. If you haven't seen it, I'm just going to spoil it. The fact that, you know, De Niro, he, he goes out, shoots his partner, um, and then he's trying to, and he lies to the police. Uh, he is a cop, but he's lying to his, his uh, the co-workers that he, he shot him on accident or, or that he was, he was trying to shoot the, the Robert Williams, Robin Williams character, who was the criminal, you know, at the time. But his partner, who he shot and killed, was actually going to send him on was going to confess against some of the things that he's done and it was going to get um interviewed and and um what's it called 
um, interrogated by internal affairs. So basically kind of killing them and getting. So basically the whole conflict that De Niro's character is uh, is going through is the fact that did I kill him on purpose or did I kill him on accident? It's really, it's really good um, concept when, you, when you're watching it. Like, did you know that was your partner or did you know that was Robin Williams? Like, what was your real motivation to killing him? And, and he's going through these, going through leaps and hurdles to trying to lie and cover up his lie, cover up his lie that, hey, yeah, 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 I was trying to shoot. Or, or no, he, he lied that um, Robert Williams character shot his partner, not him. So he was trying to cover up that lie over and over and over again. But still, it's a great internal battle at the end. You know, De Niro's sitting there looking like, yeah, I, he can't even tell if he if he if he really shot him because um, he was trying to shoot Robin Williams or if he shot him to cover up his own his own um, his own backside because he knew internal affairs was after him, which I thought was really dope, uh, really awesome that um, kind of story the plot this part of the of the story when it comes to um, that specific character was dope and then of course the iconic you know battle with self is batman bruce wayne listen like bruce wayne batman just this is one of the greatest fantasy mythological characters in our society personally i mean just the fact that his the most tragic event in his life has motivated him to do the most hardest, the most selfless acts, you know, knowing the man. And then he takes this sim this symbol. He makes a symbol out of his fear. How many of us would take a symbol out from something that we're petrified by and use that? He flips the, his own fear to invoke fear into into everyone else, into his enemies, into, the, you know, the evildoers of Gotham. I just think everything, the internal battle that Bruce goes towards, goes through, is motivated by, you know, trying to um, avenge his parents' death or, and, you know, do right by his parents. They were killed by guns, so he'll never use guns. Um, he's petrified and, and afraid of bats, so he uses bats as a symbol um, to strike fear in his in his uh, in his opponents. Like just the depth of, of Bruce Wayne is is a, a battle with itself, a battle with itself in itself. You know, and that's not necessarily Chris Nolan. That's really Bob Kane who created Batman and all that, and every other um, writer who created um, in the process of DC of making Batman, but. Christopher Nolan did a fantastic job in, in, in invoking this and showing this um, throughout the uh, the Dark Knight trilogy. And I, I think he really did a good job. And uh, Batman begins of doing exactly that. So time, battle with reality, and, you know, and this internal battle with self that you see in some of his characters um, throughout his films are just really dope themes that it really only enhance his overall storytelling um, throughout his 11 films um, so far. And then, you know, another part that of his storytelling that I just absolutely love are the iconic iconic endings you know you can't just sit through a chris nolan fan film and, and watch ever all like what 80 percent and, and not watch the ending or you can't just come at the very end of a christopher nolan film watch the ending and understand everything because you're just going to be lost you know his endings are memorable his endings make you scratch your head his endings are me make you feel like dang i really got to go watch that again you know it's very rare you can sit down one time watching a nolan film and be like yep i got it Yep, I understood everything. Yep, uh, it's all good. It, it was all there. If there's any film that I, I I thought that way, felt that way towards, it was probably Dunkirk and maybe Insomnia. But even still, those both those films warrant a rewatch that I need to, I need to do um, soon when I can. But three endings of his films that stand out the most to me. Now I'm not saying these are you know his greatest three endings, but these are three that you know come to mind when I think about um, Christopher Nolan endings. And that's number uh, I, I'm not gonna say number one, but Inception being one, right? That's one of his most popular. Everybody 
you know, discusses and debates. Was the topsy turvy turning thing? Is that still rolling? Is that still spinning? Does that mean that he's in the dream? Or does that mean that he's in reality? Because look, you watch Inception. What did he want to do the whole time? You know, God was just trying to get back to his children. Everything he always repeated. I'm just trying to get back to my kids. I'm just trying to get back to my kids. His whole motivation in the whole film was, uh, God, I love motorcycles. Um, I'm just trying to get back to my kids. And so we see that the spinning top, you know, keeps spinning and spinning. It looks like it's wobbling a little bit. It looks like it's wobbling a little bit. Um, and of course, the screen cuts to black. But, um, you know, in my personal opinion, when it comes to Inception, that top definitely kept spinning. Cobb is in limbo because you remember you watched that if you've seen Inception recently, um, Sato's character, right? He dies in the dream, right? So when you die in a dream, you get stuck in limbo. And then Cobb said, I'm gonna go out to go save Sato, go bring Sato back to reality, blah blah blah. Um, and then it kind of goes back to that um, first initial scene I was talking about before when Inception opens up, he's washed up on the beach and he sees old Sato. He sees old Sato while in limbo. Yeah, yeah, in the inception that that, that topsy turvy cop was still dreaming. He was in limbo, and I know the screen with the black, but it did not fall over. He was in limbo. That's my, that's my, that's my theory, indeed. Um, another great iconic ending was um, the Prestige. The Prestige, fantastic, underrated film. I, again, I'm embarrassed that I just recently um, heard about this film and watched it for the first time last year. Um, I wish I saw this in the film when it came out. Um, in the theaters when it came out back in 06 but the prestige is dope you know again one of the main overall you know arching the facts of the film is like they're debating about this this magic trick called the disappearing man how you can be in one place and then show up in a completely other place so they both do it christopher um christopher nolan christian bale and Hugh Jackman both um, pull out this um, this magic trick, but they do it different ways. Christian Bale does it the blue collar way, right? So he has his twin brother um, play the role of, of himself, basically. So he'd be in, in two places at one time, and we don't realize it's his twin brother till you know the end of the film. And then Hugh Jackman um, is in two places at one time with the disappearing man by making millions and millions of clones that he kills over and over and over again. So at the end of the film, we see all these you know incubators with clones of Hugh Jackman of uh, because um, he found this machine he created this machine that, that clones himself so he can have you know two Hugh Jackmans at one time so they can make the disappearing man a magic trick you know so that made my mind kind of like blew my mind when I was watching it because I was like I'm like how would you do that and what's even better about it we rewatch go through prestige again um Michael Caine makes the because they're trying to debate, like, how how can one person do, be in, in two places at one time? How can you um, fulfill the disappearing man trick? And Michael Hanks just throws out, um, you know, get, get a clone or get, get a higher stunt double or something like that. They say the, the, um, they say the solution, the resolution of the magic trick in the film. Like they give us the answer while the rest of the film, we're trying to figure it out. And of course, at the end, we, we, we see it uh, finally, but Christopher Nolan gives us the answer right there at the beginning with Michael Caine. It's just awesome to go back to see that, that he revealed it at, at, at the beginning. And then, of course, it happens at the end. But it goes over our head because we, we don't pay no mind. We pay no attention. No, that's stupid. No, get a clone or get a stunt number. Of course, they did. That's be something else. Nope. It really was that simple. It really was that simple. So shout out to the ending of The Prestige. And then, one of my, again, one of my personal favorites, you know, I really like the ending of The Dark Knight Rises. I think it's really hard to, something that Dark Knight Rises does very well. It does a great job of putting a bow on a trilogy. I think it's very hard to put a bow on a trilogy or any type of franchise, especially 
especially something as major and huge and, f and so so loved by the fans as Batman. As Batman, shoot, look at Star Wars this past year with the rise of Skywalker. I don't think that was a very good bow. Left a lot of fans upset, even including the cast and crew of that film. So um, it's not easily done. Let me just say that. And I don't know a lot of people will hate on the Dark Knight Rises mainly because the Dark Knight was so great and it just didn't live up or, or surpass that because how could you it was literally one of the you know, best films um easily of the last decade um but it does a great job of putting a bow on it i really enjoy how you had that whole little you know shake your you know scratch your head how did bruce survive did bruce survive? of course he survived so it's like how did bruce survive and then you see you know had the autopilot on, on the bat wing flying over you know the water of gotham and then um you know he sees alfred and he kind of makes up with alfred because remember and during like the middle probably act two of the dark knight rises alfred and bruce have like had that have this little um you know contentious um argument you know they're in they're, they're kind of debating with each other you know alfred's again he's like yo i'm not going to sit here and support you put your life on the line night in night out being batman when you know you're not ready to go back out there and then bruce is like you're going to stand with me all these years blah blah blah. now you're going to turn your back with me they kind of break up long story short they break up you know they break up and wipe their hands with each other for for a little bit at the beginning of that, towards the end of that film but again at the very end bruce or alfred gets goes out to that whatever restaurant it is he looks across a couple tables down the way and he sees bruce smiling with selena kyle catwoman and hathaway um he and he knows that bruce is doing okay which is something that he mentioned um earlier in the film as well which i thought was was really dope and then chris Renoli even sprinkles in that little easter egg he even gives us a little easter egg uh with uh, with robin at the very end he finds the cave you know our good uh, buddy old neighborhood cop goes into the um wayne manor finds the bat cave and then we find out that his um his name or his um his birth name or something is robin you know that lovely little easter egg that um, chris Renault had to throw in for us which um definitely appreciate i remember i vividly remember after dark knight rises everybody was like are they gonna make a robin solo film I'm like no that's that's definitely not happening i don't i don't see that happening but i really do appreciate nolan for you know sprinkling in that um that little easter egg but even not even not just just not the, um, the the dark knight trilogy all a lot of his films um the endings are full circle In inception full circle ending interstellar full circle any of the prestige full circle a lot of his films have this full circle it brings you back to the beginning memento huge definitely memento brings you back to the beginning um from where you started if you had any the main the major questions or or plot holes that were happening in the beginning he fills them probably at the very end not the last scene and um it just makes iconic and, and memorable endings um for the audience at least at least for me you know and you know in my in my opinion and then um something that I just Big, like big ups to Christopher Nolan when it comes to like his storytelling is the fact that he takes the role as um, the screenwriter, screenplay writer for a lot of this. He writes a lot of you know the scripts for um, um, the stories for for these films. So, like, Ten out of the eleven films that he's directed, he's had he's been credited uh, for screenplay. Ten out of the eleven, and the only one that he did wasn't credited for the screenplay was um, um, was a uh, look up Insomnia. Insomnia. He wasn't ready, so that was his third film after um, after Insom after Memento. All the other ten 
he he was he, he was a writer on it you know i think that's dope because it's almost like it's almost like an artist you know it's like i respect artists more when mu music mu musicians i should say when they write it you remember that whole beef with drake like drake you know he got ghostwriter oh, be, um, meek mill and drake like you got ghostwriters you know nobody can take you seriously i mean yeah i'm sure a lot of musicians have ghostwriters but still i think it's something something is I just have a little high respect for a musician when I know this came from them, especially like a rapper. Like when I know this is off your dome, nobody made it for you. This is your full experience. This is your art. You know, it kind of similarly, you know, the same way with the directors in, in the film. I really like how Chris, Chris Vanola is taking it and putting his own mind and pen to paper to create these ideas and create these stories. Now, Granted, I will admit, not all of these are unique. Obviously, Christopher Nolan did not create uh, Batman. The Prestige was a book before, and you know, he just made an you know, adapted screenplay. And the other films, you know, he, he um, he's taken from inspiration from others, but still, he still taking inspiration from other others and puts his own, you know, Nolan spin, Nolan effect to it to make some these iconic, fantastic um, art house blockbusters, as I like to say. So. Shout out to Chris Nolan to be um, the great writer. And hey, he's putting his English literature um, degree to, to work. Because remember before how I mentioned, like, dang, how in the world did this man not go to film school? Um, but he did. He, he was studying English literature. And he's using that, um, that, that uh, what he learned in school, I guess, um, through um, his screenplay work. So that is indeed pretty dope. So really, to close this all out, to close this episode out because I'm taking way too long, longer than I thought I was going to do, but um, looking at all these things into consideration, you know, the taking in what makes this whole Nolan effect, you know, to me, it's the fact that the Nolan effect for me is the fact that whenever I hear there's a new film on the horizon by Christopher Nolan from Warner Brothers, you know, I immediately, I'm immediately intrigued and I wanted to see the trailer. And when I see the trailer, I really am ready to buy my ticket like on the spot. Like if I, if I see a trailer, it's Christopher Nolan take my money like it's really that simple i just know i just i just i'm just ready to go it's very few um directors that could do that for me actors that could do that for me denzel if i know denzel coming out take my money mcconaughey take my money shoot on viola davis take my money christian bell take me like actors and actresses they can do that for me but very few directors can do that for me and, and christopher nolan is definitely one of those directors because if i know it's him I know he's coming out with something new. I know. I know it's gonna be. It's at least gonna be. At least gonna be an eight. So it's gonna be at least good, if not great. I mean, I'm still like still remember sitting in a theater in two, summer 2007, watching Transformers and seeing the trailer. Excuse me, the teaser trailer for The Dark Knight. Now this is just a teaser. The teaser trailer for The Dark Knight. In case you forgot, it was nothing but the bat symbol going from out of focus to in focus fate um building up building up building up into the into the screen and it was audio voices of bruce wayne um alfred and of course joker at the end you know it was the, it was the quote from alfred how some men master wayne just want to watch the world burn and then you hear heath ledger saying and something about how then heath ledger says something the joker lines at the end but it was just so iconic all i needed was a bat symbol and quotes from three people <laughs> batman alfred and the joker and i was ready i'm about to go see some robot aliens fight each other in the summer of 2007 but i was ready for it to be the summer of 2008 to go see batman beat up the joker um so that was you know 
And that's just the Nolan effect. That's just the, the effect that Christopher Nolan has on me and many, many, many other viewers um, that, that 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 buy ticket and watches his, his masterpieces, you know, on on the silver screen. So shout out to the Michelangelo of motion pictures, as I say, and love calling him. I can't wait to see what new piece of art that he adds to his Sistine Chapel um, in the future. And I'll catch you on the next episode of the Cinema Survey Podcast. Take care.